1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app.
2: Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Joined now by Kaylee Lines, as we do each day at this time. You made it to Friday. You're doing about five shows today, and I'm (laughs) glad this is one of them. It's, of course, Jobs Day, and this is a big day around here in Washington at Bloomberg, and the news today, I guess, mixed is kind of the headline, but boy, it's still looking pretty strong.
3: Yeah, it's a bit of a puzzle, because if you're talking about just the jobs figure, arguably it was not so great in that it actually missed expectations at only 170,000 job additions. That's the fewest we've seen in any month going back to December of 2020. So Mm. maybe not the best news, but 170,000 jobs added is still jobs added. Yes. Then you factor in the fact that the unemployment rate went down to Uh 3.5%. We are really very close to record low unemployment. And at the same time, wages are moving higher. So that's maybe not good news for the Federal Reserve, who's trying to fight inflation. But it is, in theory, good news for American people who are dealing with inflation.
2: Yeah, so it's a classic good news, bad news uh, when we consider interest rates. And if you're the labor secretary, Mm -hmm. it's good news, good news, because you don't talk about the Fed. And it's not your job to worry about inflation.
3: Right. Leave that to the monetary policymakers. And let them remain independent. Sure. And that's also the job, I guess, if you're acting (laughs) labor secretary.
2: Well, that's true. And it looks like the acting part's going to stick around for a minute, if not forever, for Julie Sue. This is our acting secretary of labor, of course, former deputy labor secretary who replaced Marty Walsh and apparently cannot clear the Senate. Uh, So the Biden administration said, fine, we'll just keep you acting secretary indefinitely. Mm hmm. And I went down to the Treasury, uh, the Treasury, the Labor Department earlier today to talk with the acting secretary. After the numbers came out, we had, a, we had a little minute to breathe. And we met outside on the porch there. Just picture a nice country porch in front <laughs> of the Labor Department. And we talked about a couple of different things here, beginning with this morning's data and, and how these two cross currents come together. To your point, payroll is a little light. Wages hotter than expected. You know how they always talk about steady, stable growth. Mm-hmm. Wonder how sustainable that is. That's where we started our conversation.
4: This is steady, stable growth. It's what we would want in the economy, right? We had uh, record levels of recovery from the global pandemic and its ensuing economic catastrophe. And now we are seeing what steady, stable growth looks like. 187,000 jobs created, bringing the total since President Biden came into office to 13.4 million at the same time that we continue to see record low unemployment rates. The unemployment rate has been below 4%. For over a year and a half now, that's the longest stretch since the 1960s, and we continue to see labor force participation rate at high levels. All of those things combined demonstrate that the president's economic policies, or Bidenomics, are working for the American people, creating good jobs, creating a little bit of breathing room, and and seeing a sustainable recovery.
2: Well, so you're clearly up on the state of the job market right now, and workers, I suspect, are too. Lower unemployment, rising wages, but those, again, those two trends come together uh, in an inflationary way. How do you balance those two moving forward?
4: So at the same time, we are seeing the inflation rate come down, right? It is, It is. it was like 3% last month. We'll see more, more numbers in a week, but Prices are lower than they were a year ago and significantly so, right? A year ago, remember, we were talking about gas prices, we we're talking about the price of eggs, all yeah. of those things continue to come down, and I think people are feeling them, you know, at the grocery store. They're also feeling them because when real wages grow, especially for low and middle income individuals, um, you see it, and we're seeing it in consumer spending, we're seeing it in confidence. It's all reflected as I travel around the country in the sense of confidence that mm-hmm. people are feeling. It's all part of the broader recovery. Would you
2: agree with the Fed that? higher inflation is more dangerous for workers than slightly higher unemployment?
4: So I don't comment on Fed policy, but I think the combination of the low unemployment rates, the participation in the labor market, plus the real wage growth which is just giving people the ability to you know to feel a little bit more secure right we're seeing this even in the jobs numbers we're seeing a return to normal one of the industries that has grown is personal services that means people are going out and getting their hair cut right? they're going to the nail salon uh, that has an impact not just on the economy but on actually you know who's who's in jobs we're seeing growth in non residential construction right we're seeing things being built uh, across the country Th- those are all signs of um, of of strength and also of this president's commitment to creating good jobs in every community.
2: I want to ask you about some of the labor actions that we've seen recently. UPS managed to find a deal without your involvement. It was a very different story for Yellow Trucking where now we see about 30,000 union jobs disappear with the collapse of that company. And they did ask the administration for help. Uh, which, which you did not get involved in. I just wonder, as you look ahead to talks between the UAW and the automakers, Ford and GM, will you be ready to jump in to avoid a strike?
4: So you are absolutely right that in the UPS and Teamsters issue, that was a great example of how the collective bargaining process works. We have another example that I know as well, which is the West Coast ports, right? Yes. And, you know, there were 22,000 workers um, for the International Longshore Warehouse Union, along with 22 ports. Those are, these are things that affect our supply chain, right? They affect the strength of our economy overall. And in those two situations, the union employers came together at the table. They grappled through some very difficult issues, and they came to a resolution. Now, those contracts need to be ratified, but it's a very different outcome than what those who were afraid about what it means to have contract expiration were saying. Um, for the UAW, right, those they're, they're at the table. They are bargaining. We're hopeful about that process as well, and I think the message is that if we can be helpful, we can be productive, um, we're asked to get involved. Um, we will evaluate based on the situation but trusting the process also means allowing parties to work through what they need to work through. Do you worry about a
2: strike in the auto sector?
4: I mean, no. We're, we're, we obviously watch what is going on. Um, what this president cares about more, and I do too, is whether workers are getting their fair share. Right? Whether workers are able to. You know, we've seen, you know, historic workers who got us through a pandemic. Right? Came to work every day. Worked even when it was not, not necessarily safe. Worked when you know before there was a vaccine. And now, in a tight labor market, as Bidenomics, the president's economic plan has given us, it gives workers a chance to say, "Hey, this is what it means to have a fair share," and it makes. It gives union employers, as we've seen in the case of UPS, as we've seen in the case of the ports, a chance to also say what's good for our workers is also good for us. And our long-term stability, our long-term security, as well as our prosperity relies on that. So that's the outcomes that we're seeing.
2: Yeah, I want to ask you lastly about your tenure here at the Labor Department. We call you Acting Secretary for a reason. The administration has decided to go forward with this without apparently a Senate confirmation. Are you prepared to serve indefinitely in this acting role?
4: As long as I'm acting secretary, I'm going to do the very best I can to deliver for the American people, for American workers and to help this president build a strong economy and a strong um, a strong nation. We'll continue at the same time to work uh, toward confirmation, obviously respect that role, uh, but I'm definitely here to do the job.
2: You're here either way, but you still do want to see this move through the Senate
4: oh sure yes and i've been grateful for the support of many many senators um, but we, we've got a uh, walk and chew gum at the same time and uh, there's a lot of work to be done and we'll continue to get that done
2: julie sue the acting secretary of labor with us a bit earlier today at the labor department very busy place out there this, this like <laughs> yeah. sounded like a pledge drive uh, while we were doing that but you know there's a lot of folks who are there to talk with the secretary on a jobs day And they're putting a good spin on this. I mean, if you're the Biden administration, you're not talking publicly about inflationary impacts of rising wages. You're cheering the fact people get bigger paychecks.
3: Exactly. I just question how much the Biden administration's messaging is actually working when you have polls like the one that came out of CNN yesterday, which showed just, what, 37 percent approval for Biden on the economy?
2: Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Uh, Look, the— The labor market and this idea of a soft landing both came up in David Weston's conversation with Larry Summers uh, earlier today. Here's the former Treasury Secretary on the job market. We still have a tight labor market, a very tight labor market, and with 187,000 jobs created and population growing 50 to 100,000 a month, we have not just a tight labor market, but a tightening Labor market A tightening still. Labor market that doesn't sound like wages are about to relax. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what Angela Hanks thinks about it. Chief of programs at Demos, former acting assistant secretary of employment in the Biden administration. Uh, Angela, when you put your economist hat on, is good news for the worker and bad news for the Fed. Uh, I
5: think. Good news all around. Uh, we saw 187,000 jobs added this month, which shows that the labor market is still continuing to chug along. Uh, we saw also that wages are continuing to rise and got to this point last, last month and it continued this month where wages are actually outpacing inflation, which is important because that means people actually feel it, right? They feel it in their paychecks, they feel it in their bank accounts. And so that's really, I think, Uh, something that will increase people's uh, confidence in the economy overall. And I think the Fed should be celebrating that as well. Um, I I would hope that the Fed um, uh, sees a tight labor market, sees wage gains, sees inflation moderating, and sees all of those things as positive signs. And I think importantly, signs that their work is done. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I think this is good news all around.
3: Well, let's... Talk about whether or not it's really good news for everybody. We just had a tweet out from President Biden right on cue saying, folks, unemployment in America has now been below 4 percent for the longest stretch in 53 years, which is true in the aggregate, Angela. But when you look beneath the surface, white unemployment is actually significantly lower, 3.1 percent. Black unemployment, while it did come down slightly from June to July, it went from 6 percent to 5.8 percent. So it's substantially higher. Should we be thinking more critically about that?
5: Yes, I think we would do well when we're in any sort of labor market situation, whether it's a tight labor market or one where there's a lot of slack, to pay particularly close attention to black unemployment. The black rate unemployment rate is routinely twice what the unemployment rate is for their white counterparts. Um, when you think about it in terms of the overall market, um, a double uh, unemployment rate for black workers means sort of this permanent Recessionary uh, feeling uh, for black workers. And so, you know, there are sort of structural reasons why that continues to persist, including employment discrimination. Um, You know, there's sort of this axiom of last hired, first fired, um, which is another reason to pay particular attention to black unemployment, because often uh, black workers are the canaries in the coal mine. We are the first workers. Um, where you'll see the impacts of things like aggressive rate hikes hike by the Fed mm-hmm. or a recession impacting the most. And so uh, black unemployment, I think, is maybe one of the most important numbers in the jobs report. I was glad to see it kick down a little bit to 520 this, uh, percent this month, but I still think there's plenty of work to be done on that front.
2: What do you make of this number on the participation rate? This is something, remember, we were obsessing over coming out of COVID. We probably don't talk about it enough now, although here at Bloomberg we tend to look pretty closely at this. The share of the population working or looking for work actually held in July uh, at the highest since March of 2020, but we saw people 25 to 54 in decline for the first time since late last year. Does that worry you?
5: I think when we're talking about sort of historic highs compared to the last 20 years of participation among prime age workers. The prime age downtick doesn't concern me at this point. I do think it's something to watch, but um, when we're, again, somewhere um, where, you know, prior to uh, 2019, we hadn't seen since the early 2000s, I think we're in pretty good shape on that front. But again, I think it's important to keep paying attention to.
3: You were mentioning, Angela, how it's in black workers that you see the effect of the Fed's tightening uh, taking shape the most. How much do you think we really have seen thus far? And are we about to get hit all of a sudden the labor market hits a wall when some of that lagged effect of all these rate hikes kicked
5: in? Yeah. So like you mentioned, the rate hikes, um, it's a lagging indicator. We don't know exactly what the effect of the hikes are until uh, much later than they've happened, which is part of the reason why I think so many experts and economists have really urged the Fed to hit pause over and over again. They haven't listened to those calls and, and of course, raised uh, rates again in July after, after actually taking a pause in June. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the thing that remains to be seen is what the impact is on the labor market. Again, like I said in the beginning, the labor market seems to be in good health right now. The signs point generally positive. And, um, you know, going too far on the rate hike side – Could jeopardize that and the Fed won't really know if they've gone too far until Until it's too late.
3: Yeah.
2: Economist Angela Hanks, we thank you for joining from Demos. Great conversation on this jobs day with Kaylee Lines. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg.
6: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over one hundred and thirty years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S T I F E L.com.
2: Steeple Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member S I P C and N Y S E.
1: you're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg
2: 1130. Speaker Kevin McCarthy is coming to Donald Trump's defense again. Kaylee Lines, he got very upset uh, yesterday when asked about The indictment, the arraignment, comparing it to what was said following every election in modern history. (laughs) I can say the same thing that Hillary Clinton says about her election that she lost. I can say the
6: same thing about the DNC who said it about um, the 2016 race. I can say the same thing about those in the Democratic Party from the leadership on down about George Bush not winning, that Al Gore did. But were any of them prosecuted? Were any of them put in jail? Were any of them held with no response to be able to get out? The answer
2: is no. So this comes down to this whole idea of a First Amendment defense. Yeah. That the president was talking about the election being stolen. He used the legal system to make a point but never did anything about it. Right. Which Jack Smith would disagree with. Yes. Yes. And whenever reporters would try to get in there, the speaker would get more upset. You know what? You shouldn't be prosecuted for your thoughts. And the difference
7: here is, when Hillary Clinton said it, nothing happened to her. When they said it in Georgia's election,
2: nothing happened to them either. You them. know what? When the DNC said it, nothing happened to them either. So stop using government to go after people who politically disagree with you. Which brings us to the weaponizing of the DOJ.
3: Right. I guess my question is, is he referring to people who won the popular vote and not the electoral college? Well, you which know, is like why...
2: Hillary Clinton said that the Russians helped Donald Trump. Okay. You know, Al Gore went through the, through the whole recount process in Florida. It right. was suggested there was something weird going on, but for the sake of the country. Right. The, the difference really is that they all conceded when it comes yes. down to it. Ryan Teak Beckwith joins us now, Bloomberg politics reporter, who I suspect has his own thoughts here. What got him so upset?
8: You know who would agree with Kevin McCarthy? It's Jack Smith in the third paragraph of the indictment in which he very clearly states Donald Trump had a First Amendment right to say the Mm -hmm. election was stolen, to pursue legal recourse on it, and he even says to falsely say the election was stolen. Like, I mean, he says you have a First Amendment right to get up and just lie lie if you want Mm -hmm. to. Uh, So the idea that it is a defense here, just, you know, full stop, to say he has a First Amendment right to... Lie about the election, regardless of the political implications of saying, as your defense, but I have the right to lie, uh, is not a great defense. Um, Not great. It's it's not the the issue uh, here. The the issue is that you are saying something while you're also doing something. And he doesn't even get into – I mean he left out, I think, for sort of clever legal reasons – the speech before the January 6th attack, mm. which could be read by some people as incitement, right. but would drag you even further down into the First Amendment right kind of yeah. uh, rabbit hole. Um, and instead focuses more on the times when he pressured the vice president to delay. And and in fact, one of his attorneys, John Eastman, sent an email to the vice president at like around midnight on January 6th after the Capitol had been stormed and everyone evacuated and all of that saying, uh, if you wouldn't mind me suggesting just one more time, a minor violation of the law. I mean, (laughs) if if you're a lawyer and you're writing in an email, I'm just suggesting a minor (laughs) violation of the law. (laughs) That's generally not considered smart. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, I guess. There's the second part of of what we think is going to be the defense strategy here, based on what we've heard already. Is not just about First Amendment, but also the intent question. If he was told by his attorneys that he did win and he was right. acting under did win acting under the belief that that was the truth, I guess that's kind of the other murky part of this. But again, the action is really the First what's Amendment an issue thing. Here. I
8: don't think is a legal strategy. I think that is a TV strategy. I, I don't think that they're Much going like to actually the get up interference in court. thing. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to be able to get up in court and say Hillary Clinton did something that's oh, not boy. going to work. And you're not going to be mm-hmm. able to get up in court and say, well, I have a First Amendment right to lie. When they're going to be like, okay, yes, but what we're talking about here is submitting face, fake electors, mm-hmm. you know, devising a scheme to get around, right, the asking to find Electoral thousands Count of Act, votes, yeah, right. you know, all of those all of those actions that he took in that, including the stuff that he considered but didn't do, like sending in the military to seize voting machines, and and that was also part of uh, John Lauro's defense, uh, his attorney, mm-hmm. uh, his defense attorney. That was some one of the things he was raising in, on TV. It was like, you know, he didn't send in the tanks again from a political standpoint,
2: <laughs> that's. I win. have a
8: right to lie and I didn't call in the tanks <laughs> are not good arguments for you. But I'd also don't think those are actually the arguments they'll be making in court.
0: Yeah. This is election interference at its finest against the leading candidate right now for president for either party. President Trump is under siege in a way that we have never seen before. President Trump And his legal team and everyone on his team will continue to fight
2: alina haba the trump attorney who was out in the street actually you were probably about five feet away from her you were down there yesterday in front of the courthouse uh kaylee there's your uh there's your defense ryan election interference first amendment and i guess you can lie if you want
8: (laughs) alina haba is also the attorney who at trump's request filed a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton, the FBI, Democratic Party, saying that they had interfered with the 2016 election. That uh, lawsuit was not only thrown out, but she and Trump were fined nearly $1 million for filing a frivolous lawsuit. (laughs) So again, like, there's law and there's TV law. And this is TV law. I mean, this couldn't be more TV law if it was like scripted by Aaron Sorkin and had a bunch of attractive (laughs) people, you know. Uh, drinking after work or something. its This is not real law.
3: Okay, well, what about campaign law? Not just for the former president who is seeking the Republican nomination, but for everyone else who is? Because we're seeing kind of a little bit more of a bifurcation among like a Mike Pence yes. versus right. a Ron DeSantis.
8: I mean, Mike Pence is actually selling... Um, campaign merchandise right now that says too
2: honest yeah he's got a sense of humor there
8: yeah i I think he's trapped a little bit on this because he would really clearly rather talk about like boring policy things that he loves to talk about and he keeps getting dragged into this and it's almost the only way that he makes news when he's uh, as a candidate Mm -hmm. uh and it's it's clearly the thing he would really most want to move on from i think the tech that they're selling the merch is a sign that they're sort of embracing it a little bit Mm -hmm. to try to get on the debate stage. But I don't think it's helping him. I don't think it's really helping any of the folks who are trying to use it to bash Trump, because too many Republicans agree that the election was stolen. Mm. And that doesn't, um, that just makes it really hard. I mean, if you really thought the election was stolen, then why not try to steal it back, kind of, you know, I mean, it's not a good legal argument. But from a political standpoint, I think uh, it's hard to come out really hard against Trump on this issue.
2: Mike Pence got Rudy Giuliani really angry, uh, did you hear about this the whole crackpot lawyer thing? Mm. He's talking about in Indiana. Like they didn't ask me. To, it was not a pause. They wanted me to kill the certification.
6: It wasn't just that they asked for a pause. Uh, the president uh, specifically asked me and his gaggle of, uh, of crackpot lawyers asked me to literally reject votes, essentially to overturn the election.
2: Well, Rudy Giuliani was really offended by that remark.
8: Rudy Giuliani has had his law license suspended in New York. That's
2: correct. Had a three judge
8: panel recommend Well, listen that he be to what he said on Newsmax
6: after that. What did Pence say? Oh, I don't think he's ever been in a courtroom. And he went to a law school nobody even knows. I mean, that guy is. The, that guy, I mean, I thought before this all happened that he was a really good guy, but too weak to be president. I always worried about him following Trump because I would see him with his wife having something around his neck every night. And walking around, she doesn't let him go to the she him go to the bathroom by himself. That's about it. But imagine that skunk doing what he did today. Call him a skunk. Uh,
8: you know, the thing is, is that crackpot lawyers is actually not totally accurate because some of these lawyers who represented Trump on these issues, uh, that probably applies to them. Um, it, you know, some of his lawyers are a little bit outside of the mainstream. Mm. But like John Eastman, the, the, who I just mentioned, sent that email I mean, he's a sterling resume. He worked for Kirkland and Ellis. He uh, he was a Supreme Court clerk. Yeah. He was, you know, white shoe lawyer. we taught constitutional law at uh, Chapman University. I mean, that, he was
2: thinking Rudy, Sidney Powell, maybe some of the others. Some I of mean, these
8: even Rudy Giuliani was a former federal prosecutor. Yeah. I mean, well, Johnny's been getting really some again. of these folks started out as like really traditional lawyers, and in the course of of representing Trump, like. Yeah really took a weird path to where they are, and they're being suspended or mm-hmm. disbarred or named as unind- Five of the six people that's right. are, mm-hmm. that's right. uh, who are unindicted co-conspirators on
2: this case with Trump are lawyers. Someday you're going to come in here when we talk about who the sixth is. We didn't even have time to talk about your column. I feel like I failed you. Oh, sorry. Read it on the terminal <laughs> about uh, Donald Trump's influence here. When it comes to economic ideas, it's not as clear as his lead in the polls. Great to see you, Ryan. We always love talking to Ryan Teague. back with.
3: We do too much that we needed more time. Yeah, we to need talk about Ryan's other stuff. To
2: pay him back for this. You're
1: listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at one Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app.
2: Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It's a wild story that only Tony Capasio would come up with. The headline on the terminal: U.S. trains forces to possibly board merchant ships near Iran. Kaylee, lines. it's like the start of an action movie here. We're talking about Navy yeah. sailors and Marines. Imagine them being dropped on merchant ships in the Strait of Hormuz to fend off the Iranians.
3: Yeah, because we have seen pretty significant activity in this area mm-hmm. of Iran targeting vessels that aren't necessarily military vessels but still are of consequence if it's something like an oil tanker, for example.
2: Brigadier General uh, Pat Ryder's... Pentagon spokesman talked about this after Iran attempted to seize two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. This is the beginning of July. Both of these incidents occurred in international waters and represent a pattern of behavior by the Iranians. Since 2021, Iran has harassed, attacked, or seized nearly 20 internationally flagged merchant vessels, presenting a clear threat to regional maritime security and the global economy. right. So Tony, who's going to join us in one minute here, writes, envision a world. Armed 20 member teams of sailors and Marines from the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit in the region, boarding vessels if requested and remaining during the transit of high risk areas in and through the strait.
3: So they're like specially trained escorts, essentially. That's
2: true. Yes. And so, you know, when they come after Tom Hanks, these guys are on board to keep the... (laughs) Tony's with us now. He came over from the Pentagon. I love you for it. Um, this is your story. Uh-huh. When are they going to drop these guys on the boats?
7: Okay, so you're you're talking about Captain Phillips in the movie? Those are Navy SEALs. Yes. This is not Navy. <laughs> no, SEALs. No, I'm not right. Of course, and they wouldn't be fast row from making helicopters. A flip. Okay, fine. you were being too flip. If if commercial companies request, and this is still hasn't happened yet, I checked a couple hours ago. Knowing you were going to grill me on this, <laughs> they would be. Uh, they would come in port. They would be in port or they would be uh, gently raft over, small-boated over and mm-hmm. boarded near the strait. But I think they would be boarded in a, Kuwait, in, a Kuwait, in a Kuwait port or something like that and come down. This is still – they're still training, by the way. I checked mm-hmm. into this. N- nobody's asked yet. So the interesting question is going to be will the U.S. announce when a company says we'd like a mm-hmm. team on board mm-hmm. or will they be just covertly put on? I'm thinking they're going to announce it because there's no deterrence if you really don't know what's well, happening.
3: I was going to say, I would I would imagine, imagine it renders the whole exercise less effective if Iran doesn't know that there's a military presence on board the vessel, Correct. right? And then that risks escalation if they don't know it.
7: So what they do know now is that this the Persian Gulf is being dotted with airplanes of different types mm-hmm. as we speak. There's a, There are the P-8 maritime patrol vessels. That are really good. They can pick, pinpoint the name of a vessel with their sensors. How about that? There's the A 10 Warthog that everybody wants, the Air Force wants you to uh, retire. retire. Yeah. But that's down there, and it's capable of swooping down in a. Machine gunning the heck out of a, wow. a small boat. That would do it. Then there's F-35s, which are able to collect images and pass them off to uh, the, the other airplanes. So these teams, I'm told, are training not only to uh, operate with the airplanes, but also destroyers and Coast Guard cutters mm-hmm. in the region. So they have a 360-degree a, a picture of threats around any vessel who wants them on board.
2: Mm-hmm. If this turns into like a real skirmish, though, I mean— is there a concern about escalation?
7: There's always a concern about escalation. The tanker war in the mid-'80s, the U.S. didn't put people on board uh, on commercial vessels, but we we had special operations helicopters att- attack in a very famous episode an Iranian vessel and also an Iranian oil rig platform that was being used as a, a as a headquarters for boats going after and firing on commercial vessels.
3: Okay, so this would be— a hypothetical scenario in which the U.S. would put boots on the ground or at least boots on board. We're obviously not doing that in Ukraine. What we've done with Ukraine instead is give them a lot of weapons and in the process deplete the U.S.'s own stockpile. And you also are writing about the replenishing of that stockpile and what companies are benefiting from it. Right.
7: So the interesting thing is that Pentagon this week – change the method they change the methodology by which they account for this stuff uh-huh. it's buried on their website so it's not like something that just pops out but they changed it to what's actually on contract to a company not what the contract the, the the what the ceiling would be up until like mid-may they had these large figures that were the ceiling and then they quietly changed it like a month two, two weeks ago basically mm-hmm. two yeah. three weeks ago to just what the company's obligated to receive in the near future i only picked up on this because i compared the sheets from may with the july sheets and i noticed mm, the difference this is reporting Are you kidding <laughs> me that's where this came from yeah i picked it up i did a match and i asked him <laughs> is this part of that six billion dollars of, of, of mis-evaluated dollars yeah and he said no this is a better way to describe it it's obligated dollars versus the to-go to go or the not to exceed amount of a contract okay but that's where we – so Lockheed's got about another $4 billion. This is the
2: first headline. that People have been asking forever, when are we going to start refilling yeah. the stockpiles? And, and you actually have the story. So $2.3 billion of a potential $6 billion. So they've, I guess, got a long way to go.
7: Yeah, they've got a long way to go. Most of it is in these uh, Gimler-guided MLRS rockets that have been used with a lot of precision by the Ukrainians. Uh, that's not all going for resupply. It's going to be part of it for research and development and improved missiles. But that's the to-go – Yep. To be obligated in East obligated then dispersed. <laughs> and now they also acknowledged the big mistake to me too. They had the originally they had the not to exceed value of these rockets to Lockheed six point two billion. Mm-hmm. So they came back and said no, it's only really five point two billion. That's not in the sheet. They just acknowledged that to me as part of my uh, pulling the information out of them.
3: Okay, so re- redoing some of the numbers here. Yes. how much of this is directly related? To the depleted stockpiles that need to be replenished, or is this otherwise, you know, money Lockheed or other companies would get either way.
7: No, no, I think most they wouldn't give me a breakdown on that, but they wanted me to put those caveats in there. I, I'm I'm pretty sure most of this is to replace the mm-hmm. rockets. But They complained. they wanted uh, they wanted us to put a caveats in there. So we put the caveats. Okay.
3: This Amazing. is how a story comes together. This Joe. is like you, a, this you, has you been a pair. Yeah. Like imagine working in the, the Pentagon.
2: Talk about <laughs> how do you get information out of the Pentagon? So we're talking about Lockheed, RTX, what used to be Raytheon, a lot of money, I guess, that's still to be made. Uh, you got to do this more often. Now that we've done it, nobody got hurt, <laughs> I hope we talked about your great reporting, Tony Capaccio. It's going to be a regular thing, I'm predicting
3: And it. now I have a new idea for a Tom Hanks movie. See that? Exactly.
2: They were SEALs. Yeah. Failure SEALs. The whole thing wrong. Not (laughs) Marines
7: and Sailors. Not at all. Remember that.
2: Find (laughs) him on the terminal. He's the best we got, and he's the best at the Pentagon. Tony Capasio. I'm Joe Matthew with Kaylee Lines. And this is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast.
1: Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: The Dark Roast mug is really taking on a life of its own. We introduced our listeners to this yesterday. That would be the Dark Brandon mug. Mm Mm-hmm pretty remarkable to think this this, this is the day Donald Trump is in town to be arraigned the third time for months. Joe Biden's playing Dark Brandon on Twitter.
3: Well, I have to say at Trump's arraignment yesterday, a lot of the Trump supporters were wearing Let's Go Brandon hats. (laughs) So he's just leaning in on the other side.
2: And this is the online meme. If you're not familiar with Dark Brandon, they took the, the Let's Go Brandon. They tried to flip it around in their favor and this is like the sort of, you know, conniving machiavellian mm-hmm. Joe Biden and he has laser eyes. And in this case he's got this quick video, he's got the Dark Brandon mug, takes a big swig and says, "I like my coffee dark." Yes. So <laughs> Axios did some reporting on this. Apparently they're they're making a lot of money on Dark Brandon. Yeah. It's not just the mug either. Merch sales
3: are apparently where it's at. More than 50% of Biden's campaign merch store sales Total revenue is coming from Brandon-themed <laughs> products. About forty-four percent of all store orders are these products, it's amazing. and they've driven nearly seventy-six percent of all clicks onto the website, according to the so campaign. So
2: most of the stuff they're selling is dark Brandon. Yeah, it says you know Biden twenty twenty-four. It's got the laser eyes on it. Have you looked at some of? They've got a lot of different stuff. They it's got not,
3: a, a dark T-shirt, uh-huh. crop top.
2: That's <laughs> like,
3: baseball caps. It's
2: got you written all over that. <laughs> baseball cap uh, they have raised this is the this is the amazing part 10.2 million dollars from small donors during the last quarter half of barack obama's 21 million dollar haul during the same period in 2011 they're gonna have to make more dark brandon maybe a magnetic a keychain yeah there's a bunch where if you go do on the still website bumper stickers i'm not sure about that like you, you a bumper see sticker on your tesla more. i don't know i don't know It was like the lifeblood of radio stations for so many years. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern time at Bloomberg.com.